0: Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by Literary Cleveland, where you can explore other voices and discover your own. Find events, workshops, and a supportive writing community at litcleveland.org. And we're brought to you by Max Bax, a proud Cleveland indie bookstore with three floors for browsing, great online service, and chocolate milkshakes right next door. Find another great read at maxbax.com. So, as a child, I was a bit theatrical. I tap danced at nursing homes, directed talent shows on the front porch, and composed original works for my recorder club. (laughs) I memorized songs from The Sound of Music, and repeatedly staged neighborhood productions of Annie in my upstairs bedroom. If you crossed me, I made you play Miss Hannigan. But it was not until high school that I actually auditioned for anything. In my first musical, Working, I sang backup for a factory worker and a housewife. I had no lines and no costume changes, and I spent roughly 11 minutes on stage, most of it pretending to clip coupons. I spent so much time off stage that I could make a McDonald's run during the show and still make it back for Curtain Call. I played an extra in Moliere's The Miser and an unnamed teenager in Bye Bye Birdie. Senior year. I got a big break in what turned out to be my last musical, Godspell. My boyfriend and I broke up the week before and then I caught a cold and lost my voice. So on opening night, I had to lip sync my own solo while a friend actually sang it for me. As I look back on these bit parts and botched scenes, I find it hilarious that I grew up thinking of myself as a singer, dancer, and actor Of course, it's nonsense. I am no more an actor than I am a snake charmer. But the things we try as children stick, even if they don't turn out to be true. And moreover, I know some of my confidence and poise and sense of myself came from those times when I stood on a stage and sang off-key in the spotlight. That is one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk to today's guest, because she has actually lived the dream I dreamed. She too caught the theater bug at a young age, but unlike me, she was actually good at it. In fact, she's more than good, she's incandescent. Deirdre Ring is a graduate of the Gaiety School of Acting in Dublin, Ireland, and a proud member of both the Actors' Equity Association and the Screen Actors Guild. Deirdre has joyfully performed in many local, national, and international theaters all across North America and Ireland, and she has been named best actor and supporting actor in a number of those cities. From Dracula to Steel Magnolias, she's played countless roles at her household names. But even more impressive is the list of Deirdre's plays that many of us have always meant to see or longed to see proof. Hobson's Choice, There's a Happiness That Morning Is, A Long Day's Journey Into Night, and Dozens More. Deirdre has been a teaching artist with Playhouse Square, passionately involved with their International Children's Festival and the Broadway Summer Camp. She's also served as an artist-in-residence with both Cleveland School of the Arts and Culture Kids. And Deirdre's proudest accomplishments to date are her two miracles, Rosie and Henry. My friend Deirdre Ring, welcome to Wild Precious Life.
1: Thank you, my friend
0: Anne-Marie. <laughs> I'm I'm so
1: happy to be here.
0: So we always start with the same question here at Wild Precious Life. Uh, make it long and winding, make it short and snappy, you can do the bullet points. It doesn't matter to me at all. But Deirdre, will you tell us your story?
1: I will, but as as you asked me to tell my story, I'm I have my father's voice in my head saying, Was it raining? because that was a cue for us to know that our story was very long and very winding. And if the person that was talking and, you know, giving this very long winded story answered the question, was it raining with, well, it was kind of a dry day or it was a sunny day. That's when you knew you were in big trouble because they actually (laughs) answered the question. They didn't get the the clue. They were not clued in. So um, with respect to my father, i try and keep it brief. I came over to America oof, 25 years ago to Cleveland, Ohio. I auditioned for the Cleveland Playhouse because I needed to work on some audition pieces. I was still in acting school back in Dublin. And I met a wonderful man called Peter Hackett who ran the Cleveland Playhouse at the time, who offered me a job there and then on the spot. And uh, I was like, I'm sorry, I gotta go back to school. So, But I'll write to you. And this is the days when people used to write to people and long, long letters. And so Peter and I wrote each other letters for the next three years, because I acted quite a bit in Dublin before I came to America. And, um, and he said, anytime you come over. So I would send him reviews. I would keep him updated on what I was doing. And uh, then there was a thing called, a, uh, was it a Morrison visa? I think it was a Morrison visa. So we had a lottery system in Ireland whereby you would win a visa to America, you know, and you'd enter the lottery every year. And I entered the lottery one year. My mother entered the lottery for me another year. And uh, I won both lotteries. So <laughs> yeah, right. You're not supposed to. You're really not supposed to do that. So so I figured, well, I should at least go over and get myself checked in to America so that I don't lose one of these winnings. And, um, and that's really how it happened. And when I decided I was going to Come to America, it it was not a long-term plan. I mean, it was just, although I did buy a one-way ticket because I thought I have to give it a shot. If I get a return, it means I haven't given it a shot. So I've never bought that ticket back. I ended up here working all over the country and started in the Cleveland Playhouse and basically like a gypsy, traveled all across America in my twenties and early 30s, and then ended up meeting a guy and said, I know, right? They do that to us. And then um, I said, down here in Chubin Falls, Cleveland, Ohio.
0: Well, we are lucky to have you. Back in Ireland, was this the future you dreamed for yourself?
1: It was, but it wasn't something that you would really choose as a career. You know, um, when I was in high school, I told my career teacher who was a bit of a joke to begin with. I told him, you know, we used to have these leaflets and you pick up the leaflets. Do you want to be an engineer? Do you want to be a lawyer? And then it was, do you want to be, I found the one that said actress, and say actress, said actress. I'm like, oh, I want to do that. And I knew it from when I was about seven. I mean, I felt that this is, I was playing a witch. I'm good at witches still, but I was playing a witch (laughs) and I scared the front row of the audience. And I thought, oh, this is magic. I have power. It was the first time I felt I had power, right? And, and that it was fun and that I could be something else. And I thought, this is what I want to do. So I said to this career guidance teacher, this is what I want to do. And he just laughed at me like really loudly. You're joking. Don't be ridiculous. Don't be ridiculous. That's a hobby, right? That's not something that you do for a living. So I went out uh, and my parents were like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> that is that's sensible. No, absolutely <laughs> not. No. And, uh, so I did my degree in music, and I think the first week that I music and English, but the first week I went to University college Cork, I joined the Dramat Society as you do, and um, was cast in the crucible and I yeah, but one of the older women, I wasn't cast as the young lead. And I called my mom on you know, a phone in the wall because I didn't have cell phones and I said, "Mom, I, I really want to be an actor. I don't want to do this, I don't want to do my degree." She just hung up on me. <laughs> So I went through college, I did my degree and I handed my parents the degree and I said now I'm going to do what I want to do, I'm going to go to theatre school and they still said no and my sister then, who uh, finally stepped in, she's 10 years older than me and she secretly wanted to be an actor herself and she goes, enough, let her do what she wants to do. So um, I auditioned for the Gaiety School of Acting and, and went there for two, it was a two year very intensive course and uh, studied acting there.
0: I always wanted to be an actor. So I tried out for all the shows in high school. And I would be the one who'd like march into the Diary of Anne Frank audition thinking, hey, I might get the lead. My name is Anne Marie and the the play is about an Anne. That's probably good (laughs) enough. That's logical. Um, I'm buying it. I'm buying it. (laughs) And then, then of course, I wouldn't be cast as that. Um, And I actually can remember... We did Bye Bye Birdie, that musical about the Elvis type character who comes to town. And I remember I got my very first line, but it was delivered in the dark during a scene change. So <laughs> <laughs> I said I still remember it. I-, I I said I um I found a lock of someone's hair. I wonder if it's his. And I must have practiced that line a thousand times, like a different accent. So I found a lock of someone's hair. I wonder if it's his. Or like like. Theatrical, like, I found a lock of someone's hair. I
1: wonder if it's his. Oh, my God, (laughs) you were going to get the most out of that one line.
0: (laughs) I mean, it was during a scene change in the dark. I was an unnamed, you know, telephone hour character, but I was desperate to act, but had absolutely no idea how to do it. And still to this day, I'm terrified trying to be anybody other than myself. So what do you learn in acting school? Tell, what, what were the things that would have helped me to learn? How do you, what
1: do you study? Well, you know what? I'll be honest with you. I've learned more outside of acting school than I have in acting school. And the reason I say that is I was very, very lucky in that I, I happened to be in rehearsal rooms after school with some of the best actors in the world. And so I learned from them. I really and truly learned from them. And I would take notes and I would watch and and notice. And uh, especially in, you know, in Ireland, there's a huge tradition, as there is in England as well. A lot of actors, the older generation, didn't have acting school, but they had skills that they learned through vaudeville, through um, variety shows. So they bring this very rich tradition that is kind of getting lost, actually, I think, of coming up through, a lot of them would have started as stage managers. They would have started as stage hands. It's all about reacting to the energy that you're getting, as opposed to acting and getting up there and saying your lines. It's about what am I, what am I trying to say to this other person? And what is that other person giving me? And I'm going to take that energy and I'm going to give it back to them. And therefore there's going to be this beautiful communication between us. There's going to be a give and take. You know, technically, obviously, in acting school, we did a lot of mind. We had an amazing mind teacher um, who had studied with Marcel Marceau. Those were very intense classes. We had some, we had dance classes. We had tap classes. We had gentlemen who taught us mako ho, which is a Japanese form of... I, I think it's actually used for fighting, but we never did that. It was all the very slow movements, like Tai Chi. did it at a Tai Chi speed. And uh, then we did a lot of script analysis. And then we wrote our own plays, um... At the end of our two years, we had a playwright, Gavin Costick was his name, a very well-known Irish playwright, come in and write a play specifically for our class. So he spent the last maybe six months with us. And so he wrote this wonderful play to our strengths, which was a lot of fun. So there was always, it was always a sense of excitement at the end of the two years, what, what the play was going to be, you know, amongst people in Dublin, what's it going to be this year?
0: What part did you have? Do you remember what kind of role you played?
1: I was, I believe I was Esther. Was, I was Hungarian, which is funny because I married Hungarian, but <laughs> I was Hungarian and it was very much like the story of the Titanic. And I played the piano and unfortunately Gavin knew that. So he had me be the music um, uh, accompaniment for all the songs. So I had to learn an awful lot of songs for that. <laughs> and it was all, the songs are beautiful though. They were set, it was set in the 1920s. So I got to, to play a lot of, Songs and uh, and I, I, I had a beautiful death at the end. This beautiful slow motion that our mind teacher worked with us, where I was, you know, um, I died in the water. So there was this beautiful, beautiful, slow death that two of us had as the, as the ship came down. And my nephew Gavin, who was about nine at the time, who's now an incredible uh, tenor in Ireland and very well known, but Gavin was in the audience, and all I heard was, No, Dee Dee, no. <laughs> as Dee, Dee died. So.
0: Well, I have seen you die on stage a number of times. I've also seen you kill. What's harder, dying or killing on stage? Okay,
1: well, uh, I don't know. It depends on the play. It depends on whether it was a good death or a bad death. I guess you have good ones and bad ones. Poetic ones and not so poetic ones. Ones that are brutal and ones that have a sense of release. But mostly I would say there's... In most of the plays I've done, there is a sense of relief when the character dies because they've earned it. If it's a well written play, they've earned that moment of letting go.
0: I'm wondering how being an immigrant to this country informed your creative talent. So I'm thinking about what it means to be an observer of a culture. I know as a writer, I've moved around a dozen times. And so I. Land in a place, and I'm an observer for a while. I have to listen because I'm not invited to go anywhere yet. No one knows me. So how how do you think uh, being an immigrant to this country affected your craft?
1: That's a really great question. My perception of America was through sitcoms, through American movies, through television. I mean, that was my world into America. My view of it was through the television or through the big screen. So it's a very mythological place, America, you know, to immigrants. It's just this giant, exciting Oz. Here's the thing, you can't just be an American. You have to be better than an American, right? You just have to do it better, is in my mind. And so I would actually sit in cafes, I'd go to places, and I would have my notebook and take notes. If there's someone, I've I, I based a lot of people I know on characters that I've done in place. I don't think you're in one yet, Anne Marie. Oh, no. I'm waiting. <laughs> I'm waiting to know that you the just killer wait. is you me. Just wait. <laughs> yeah, Medea. No, that she was Irish, so you're safe there. But I, I, I do observe um, a lot when I'm doing a show. It's absorption, so it's more than more than observation. It's absorption. I, I go and I absorb people. <laughs> you know?
0: Do you ever get nervous?
1: Yes, all the time.
0: I think an assumption we make about actors is that they don't get nervous.
1: No, I get nervous all the time. Uh, Very nervous. And, you know, it depends. It depends on how high the stakes are. You know, the one person show I recently did was nerve-wracking for the first week. After the first week, I I found my groove, you know?
0: So then how do you deal with nervousness? Where do you put that nervous energy or that self-doubt? How does it show up and what do you do with it?
1: I get out of my head. The first thing I have to do is get out of my head. So I do a very, very intensive physical and vocal warm-up beforehand. I play some music that relaxes me, some meditative music. With the one person show, I actually would walk through each scene each night, just mark it, market, market so that I knew where I was going, generally. And then I would get really quiet, probably at a half an hour before the show. At half hour I just go inside, I get super quiet, calm the noises in my head, try and move my mind and all those negative, you're not good enough, you're going to fail, you're going to forget a line, you suck, someone's coming tonight and they're going to hate you. And so you put all those thoughts away and I tell them to leave. I give them permission to go out the door. And then I put my brain in my stomach and we calm ourselves down. And then I stand in the wings and you know, there's, um, there's two things I remember. One, a director once said to me, uh, Tim Douglas said, just before you go out, I want you to say this to yourself every time. I don't know. Just say, I don't know. And so I always do that. And then Dorothy Silver and I, lovely Dorothy, we used to say, you know, and I think he came from Jack Lemon, uh, originally, but see you on the ice. So I have the sense of it's an awfully big adventure. I don't know where I'm going and I'm just going to skate. And that's it. And you got to let go. It's it's really about letting go and knowing that you've got it and anything can happen because it's live theater. (laughs) (laughs) And enjoy the fact that anything can happen as opposed to being terrified that anything can happen.
0: (laughs) Wow. What? um, I guess I have two thoughts about that. One that's super helpful to hear. I always think about one of the reasons you're nervous is because you care. You're, you're nervous because your body and your and your heart and your mind want to do a good job at this thing you you care to do a good job doing. So I hear you saying one of the ways I, I get through nervousness is I prepare. I I mark through the steps. I, I get my voice ready and my body ready. So that, that totally makes sense to me. And that, too, that you embrace the fact that you're actually not in charge of all that happens tonight, that you're going to get out there on the ice and you're going to welcome what comes and in the face of it, do your best. I find that really helpful to think about. I also find myself curious to know what goofy stuff has happened on the stage that you're like, wait, what? Like props that weren't there or actors that like, <laughs> tell me some just like goofball stuff. I have a really good one. Actually, props that <laughs> weren't there is
1: a good one. Because um, that, that, that happens so much more often than the audience knows. So I was doing the playboy of the Western world at the Irish Rep theatre in New York down on down in Chelsea. And one of the lines that Christy, the young man in it, and I was playing Peggy, and his lover, says, You have a power of rings. God bless you. Right? So she meaning she has her hand is full of all these rings, kind of tin rings, nothing fancy. And I just before he said the lines, maybe about four or five lines, I'm going, oh my God, I don't have the rings on. Because my <laughs> brain and this is the other thing that's really strange about acting right? it's really funny. You're in the moment but you're always aware of what's coming. (laughs) So I realized I don't have it. Now I have to stay in the moment, but I don't have it. So I'm desperately, it was set in a she bean and I'm at the bar and I'm putting my hand under the she bean going, what can I put on my fingers? (laughs) There's nothing. I found a pen. So I under the counter as he's talking to me, I'm drawing rings onto my my fingers. Yep, I'm drawing things onto my... So by the time I got up, there was like very scribbly lines <laughs> on my finger. <laughs> and thankfully, the other actor, Dara, did not laugh because he, he really should have, considering what he, the aberration that he saw on my hand. <laughs> so that's one.
0: Have you ever had a like a line that's missed and you realize if the audience doesn't get that line that was missed, nothing's going to make sense later. So you got to go back and pick it up, even though it's really not... I don't know, have you ever had, like, lines be goofy? Yeah,
1: all the time. All the time. (laughs) And there is, you know, I I was in a show with um, an actor who shall remain nameless (laughs) who skipped the entire, it was really the exposition. And and Uh, so about halfway through the the exposition, he skipped to the middle of the playing. Oh, no, 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 we can't have this, can't have this. So... I had to um, improvise lines to get that person back to where we needed to be. And they kept looking at me like, what? I know what you're talking about. They just kept going. I'm like, no, no, don't you remember? Do you remember when this happened?
0: <laughs> you brought up memory. Do you notice a difference uh, in learning lines as a 19-year-old and learning lines as I think you're 29 now? So yes, in the 10 yes. years since, um, <laughs> do you notice any difference as a slightly older adult?
1: <laughs> yes, we're both very young artists, And uh, Yes, of course I do. Oh, and I, you know, I'm, I was Googling when I did a one-person show a few years ago, um, and it was very—it was a brilliant play by Eric Coble, who's a local Cleveland writer. But it was really difficult to learn. And I remember googling months beforehand, "How can I learn lines?" As if I'd forgotten, you know. And one of the things was a blueberry juice. So I literally drank blueberry juice <laughs> every day. <laughs> Because the guys who is, is a training for Jeopardy, one guy who trains for Jeopardy, it said that he drinks, he, uh, you know, he absorbs an awful lot of information before the show, lots of facts. And he, he goes on a steady diet of blueberry oh juice. It did help, by the way. It did help. So, but yes, it's much harder and I have to break it down and I have to chunk it and I have to ask for help. I have some fabulous friends who walk me through the lines and, you know, they witness my Tourette's Effing and blinding every 10 minutes because I can't remember the line. It's just, it's very ugly. My line learning is very ugly.
0: But that always gets learned. It just takes a little longer?
1: Very long. It takes a long time. Long time. Yeah. It takes a full four weeks for me to learn those lines. Yeah. I always think
0: of acting as being a solo job, but the way that you're describing it, both with the ensemble and the giving and the taking, and the front of the house and the back of the house, and the folks who come to your aid and come to your rescue and and come to help you learn these things. Um, That's giving me a different picture of what it means to be an actor.
1: Right. Yeah, it takes a village, you know, and the the people that rarely get the um, credit are, really are the people in the back of the house, are the, you know, the beautiful set designers, the costume designers. The director usually gets credit, but, you know, and the stage managers. Stage managers are so important, too. You know, they're very valuable and they're great for feedback once the director leaves. If, you know, the show is getting slower or whatever, their job is to let you know, you know what, you need to pick it up. Um, But, yeah, it really does take a village and it's a very collaborative art form. So
0: then how difficult has it been these past, oh my goodness, 18 months to be a performer when so much has been closed?
1: Yeah, it was, it was tough. It was tough. There's no question, but I think everyone went through it. I mean, we're not alone in that. You know, every, everyone, apart from, you know, essential workers, everyone went through the same thing, but it was, it really questioned. And you know, what's interesting is I've heard a lot of people have not gone back to acting. Is what I'm hearing. Quite a few people, especially New York actors, changed their, they just changed the course of their lives. And I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing. I just think people questioned what they do in a very profound way during COVID that perhaps they didn't have the time to do because you know the way you're on that treadmill and you just keep, or the hamster wheel, and you keep going, you keep going doing what you do and you don't stop to think. And I think some people got to do that and just changed changed course.
0: Now, I think COVID made everyone, whether you wanted to or not, take a look at your priorities, take a look at what you love, take a look at what you fear. I, I think also one of the ways that you and I became close during this past year or two is that uh, we both suffered losses in our family. My dad passed away and your brother passed away, and I'm heartbroken about both of those things. And I remember a distinct moment, and I couldn't actually tell you the day or the month, but I can tell you what it felt like to sit there with you side by side in our grief and um, laughing and crying together together about these people we loved and lost in a time when many people were loving and, and losing. So if you don't mind, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I'm wondering, will you will you tell us about your brother?
1: Oh, well, I do remember that moment as well, anne and I'm forever grateful that you came to our house with, as usual, tons of food and joy and friendship and tears. I just, you know, I, I wish every friend would do that for their friends. When, when you're going through grief, it's just, it's such a lonely place to be because a lot of the time people, they don't see it because we hide it, right? We hide our grief. It was devastating. I lost my best friend, you know, I'm probably going to start crying now, but I did, I lost my best friend. Dearment, and I were very, very close. He um, struggled his entire life with depression. And from the age of 16, when he had a nervous breakdown, he struggled and We were very close and COVID was very, very, very hard on him. Um, And he was actually coming over to visit us last summer, but everything was cancelled. So his flight was cancelled. He was an amazing advocate for people. He started many organisations to help people. He was like a a peer counsellor for students at University College Cork. He he also went to the same college. He was a librarian, uh, loved books. Loved reading, loved writing, loved Joan Baez. Oh, my gosh, did he love her. I mean, mm-hmm. to the point where we're going, if we have to listen to one more Joan Baez, song, I'm going to lose it. <laughs> the answer is blowing in the wind. Be quiet. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, Forever Young was, you know, we played, oh. we played that at his um, funeral. But I'll tell you, it was heartbreaking because we didn't get to go to his funeral because of the restrictions that the government had an Ireland and so we couldn't fly. So my brother who's here, my brother Brendan and I, had to watch my brother's wake in our house on WhatsApp. Then we watched his funeral on YouTube. We watched his burial on YouTube. And I cannot recommend that. However, I am grateful that we were able to do that. I still think I haven't quite recovered from that experience because I don't know if I ever will. It was absolutely surreal. But man, I miss him. You know, I miss him every day. I just miss him every day. We're going to go home this Christmas and we're going to try and um, remember him together as a family because we were really robbed of that. And, you know, I blame, we're still waiting on autopsy results and they suspect that it was an accidental overdose. But honestly, I think it was COVID killed him, you know, The isolation killed him. It makes me very angry that people were allowed or told to stay in their homes, especially people who needed people, you know, they needed human contact on a daily basis, which my brother needed. He was a very social being, you know, and he just went in on himself, but, you know, the truth, the truth shall be revealed about that. But yeah, it's just, it's just heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking, you know, and i never recover from it. Do you still hear his voice? I hear his laughter. He had a great laugh. He had like the best burst out laughing laugh. I have a
0: photograph that you shared with me of him laying in the wildflowers. And that's how I never had the good fortune to meet your brother. But that's how I will remember him. Yeah. He's laying in the wildflowers. That's totally him. Yeah. You talking about the funeral makes me think about how much, I mean, my, my dad was John Paul Kelly, one of... 10 children, the Irish <laughs> Kellys. And and what growing up, what it meant to grieve was we grieved collectively, right? Yeah. You went to a funeral, you drank, you laughed, you cried, but it was absolutely a collective experience. And yeah. I was able to attend my dad's funeral, but but not everyone was. We only had 10 of us there, right? So I couldn't, mm-hmm. my husband could not come. My children could not come. So I had to I had to stand there alone with my sister and my brother and and we couldn't have our spouses there. My dad had 9 siblings, but in order for them all to come that would have meant we couldn't come. I do feel robbed of 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 um just the chance to laugh and cry to hold one another and remember yeah. those preposterous stories that you only remember when you're in the middle of grief and and you know the the day I got caught sneaking out with a boy and my dad hit me on the shoulder with an umbrella. <laughs> God, I could never it, imagine right? you doing that,
1: Emily, ever. You're <laughs> such a good girl.
0: <laughs> oh, or the way you could always tell he was coming because he whistled. And so you'd hear him. He could whistle the entire Beatles catalog. And so you'd hear him before you'd see him oh, just whistling. I can't whistle, but one note. Um, and just little little details like that that I wanted to stay. I'm glad you guys are going to get together this This Christmas and and do that. I think that's so important
1: to keep the memory of that person alive.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I'll never forget this. You sent me. It was called a train for you. Yes, I want to say Finnegan. I want to say is it Crunkmeyer? Crunkmeyer. Yeah. You sent me this, and I cried on my bathroom floor. Just I melted into a puddle, but if I'll link to it on the show notes. But it was this described as like this simple allegorical offering that you hand to a loved one when you don't know the words to say. And I I, I will forever pass this along and pay it forward. It was just about this train that we board when we were in grief that comes for you and, and you don't have to call it and and you'll never be late and you don't have to worry about what to wear or what to say, but there are people who are with you and you're on that journey for as long as you need to be. And I've been surprised by the, the fellowship and the communities of people who I I found that that the love that you have for your brother or your father it doesn't doesn't go anywhere it's always it's in your pockets and it's in your on your heart sleeve and it, it comes up when you hear someone whistling the beetles or when you see someone laying in the wildflowers or laughing uh, that they're always with you uh, mm-hmm. and that that really brought it to mind when you gave me that oh my goodness I could talk about the people we love forever but I I suppose that that there are there are other things too that my dad would be like come on now move it along
1: was it raining was it raining emory uh, <laughs> it was a light
0: snow and oh, i had no! a cheese sandwich no oh god uh, no we're in
1: trouble
0: now <laughs> i love this um Hey, so what's a role that you've never gotten to play, but it's waiting in the wings for you or you're waiting in the wings for it?
1: Well, I'm very, I'm very, I'm way too young um, yet, but I would eventually love to do Long Day's Journey tonight, Mary. I would love that role. Um, I played the maid in it many years ago with Ellen Burstyn playing that role and she was off the charts. <laughs> but it was really special it was a special production and we got to visit O'Neill's house and i you know and i've done a few O'Neills i just love him i love him i love his his talk about great storytelling hey
0: i know you teach young people we're both we're both teachers i do
1: i love young people
0: the vast majority of them will probably not go on to professional theater careers just based on the numbers so given that what do you hope they gain from a theater class
1: a sense of themselves Their own voice, ownership of their own voice, as opposed opposed to who they think they should sound like, and really taking ownership of themselves and not being afraid to express themselves and less judgment of themselves and the ability to listen and the ability to empathize.
0: I don't think I got any of those gifts in any of my classes growing up. (laughs)
1: I would have said, it over like, one can only hope, you know, this is just a hope. You asked me what do you, what that's, do you That's, hope? that's wonderful. I mean. What do you hope, Anne-Marie, for your students? I'm so envious of your students and lucky ducks. Uh,
0: yeah, I, I hope to give them understanding too, that, that you can try something really hard and it doesn't always go well, but you try that hard thing and we'll, we'll work back and forth to, to make it better. I teach writing and very little of my writing is is any good the first draft you just keep going back and forth you keep asking questions you keep nudging it you keep hanging out in what you wonder and what you're curious about and and the, the words come they get there but i love working with young people i think it's it's um, keeps me young makes me feel old some days but but keeps me young most days
1: i uh, told my students this week that i would bring them donuts I probably am. I'm not supposed to do that. But anyway, I'm going to bring them donuts on one condition that they behave like five year olds next week and are very badly behaved. Now they're seventeen and eighteen year olds <laughs> because they're they're so stressed out. You know these the final years for these kids. They're so stressed out and they're not having fun a lot of the time. I just I want you to be. I want you to have fun.
0: I had a a workshop. At the Folger Shakespeare Library one summer with, um, I want to say, Kayleen Jennings. I will look up her name. But she had us all behave like barnyard animals, right? We were the pigs. We were the duck. We were barnyard animals. We, at, at one point, there was a snake at the farm, and we were slithering. And then she had us get up and deliver our monologues from, you know, A Winter's Tale. Or it, it, and I was like, wait, I'm not ready. And she's like, no, you're exactly ready. You're exactly where you
1: need to be. You've got out of your head. Your head isn't making the decisions anymore, right? You're speaking from your gut. No, absolutely. It's so important.
0: Okay, so we always close with introductions here. It makes sense to me, so hopefully it will make sense to you. I always ask a few, um, like multiple choice and short answers. There, there will be no points awarded, so you're not being graded. <laughs> um, so just answer. Um, I know. i want to gold star. Whichever. One. Yes, well, gold stars all
1: around. <laughs> okay.
0: All mm-hmm. right, so um, the first one, dogs or cats? Dogs. What's your dog's name again? Falcon. That's right. I love Falcon. Yeah. <laughs> uh we coffee, all love Falcon. Coffee or tea?
1: Ooh. It's a hard one.
0: Coffee. Really? See, we've drunk yes. both in the same sitting, so I wasn't sure I what know. you'd say on this.
1: That's why it's, it, I, yeah, well, you, you said it's multiple choice. I have to choose, right? Or do yeah. I? <laughs> yeah, coffee then. <laughs> uh, mountains or beach? Oh. I love both. How can you have one without the other? Oh, I that's a really hard question. I would say a mountainy beach. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that seems like you're choosing both, but we'll we'll allow it. Judges I said a mountainy beach. <laughs> <laughs> Judges? Alright, they they're gonna allow it, yes. Um <laughs> Early Bird or Night Owl? Oh Night Owl. You haunt the house? Yes. Yeah, me too. Are you a risk taker or the person who knows where the Band-Aids are?
1: Well, as a mother, I need to know where the Band-Aids are, but I'm a risk taker. <laughs>
0: yes, I, I would think so.
1: Um, what's one of
0: your go-to songs? Megan Trainor, I
1: Feel Better When I'm Dancing. Nice. Mm-hmm.
0: What's, a, what's a movie or a book that you love? Or I suppose I should let you do play, too. You could just do a play.
1: Movie, book, oh. or play? <laughs> oh movie book or play okay now you throw me another loop-de-loop okay play let's see a play that I go back to read again and again I would say Hamlet all about Eve movie
0: all about Eve I have not seen that in years mm. I found so it good. terrifying when so I saw good. it I wonder what I would think of it now
1: it is terrifying it's still terrifying it's great <laughs>
0: <laughs> what's
1: your favorite ice cream I'm really boring. I just love... Okay, in Ireland, we have a thing called the 99 ice cream cone, which is basically a cone. And it's like Euclid custard on top, but it's dairy ice cream that you twirl around. And then you stick a Cadbury spake in there that's chocolate and flaky. And you can, you can um, sprinkle it all over the vanilla ice cream. And when... Our kids go to Ireland. The first place we have to visit is Banks and Carsabine for a ninety-nine. So I have passed, it's in our DNA now. It's been passed down to my children. I love ninety-nines. I've never heard of that before. When you go to Ireland, Anne Marie, you will see them everywhere. There's literally signs outside of every store: ninety-nines, ninety-nines. And I don't know why they're called ninety-nines.
0: Oh, within ninety-nine cents?
1: No. They weren't, because we used to have them in our store growing up. My parents had a grocery store, and we used to serve 99s, and they were 50p. So, no, I don't think that was the reason. So, who
0: knows? All right. When you go back, you can find out, and then you can let me know. Last one. If we were to take a picture of you joyful and doing something you love, what would we see you doing? Swimming in the ocean with my family. That's a great image. I hope you guys get to do that when, well,
1: Christmas oh, we're doing the Christmas swim. It's going to be 40 degrees. We're, no, we're doing it. We're doing it. Yeah, my husband has said, <laughs> absolutely not. but the And the kids have said, absolutely not. But we're going, absolutely, yes, you're doing it. <laughs> it's for charity. <laughs> so we're all going for our Christmas swim I, on Christmas that's Day.
0: That's excellent. <laughs> I look forward to hearing <laughs> how that goes.
1: I've seen yes. photographs of the blue faces coming
0: out of the water. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, Deirdre oh. Ring, thank you for being here. Thank you for talking about voice. And I'm thinking a lot about what it means to find a sense of ourselves, both in a theater class, but also out in the world. I have watched you in countless shows. We've walked dogs and raised children. We're both the mothers of Henry's. Yes, we but are. Thank you for letting me keep getting to know you and, and, and opening your heart to this conversation. It can be easy to get in holding patterns, I think, with our friends to take them for granted and to forget to tell them that they are wonderful. So I think you're wonderful. You're a wonderful actor. Oh, my gosh. And you're a wonderful you know, friend. No, I
1: think you're amazing. I think, you know, let's just let's love on each other for a bit here. I'm Marie Kelly Harbaugh, but thank you. Uh, it's an absolute honor to be on your show because I love your show, and I'm so proud of you because this is a great, great, great place to come and have a conversation, although I'd rather you come to my house, so come on over.
0: We'll do, we'll do that. Or we should go to New York City because I think – I would just—I yeah. don't think you and I have ever watched a play together. I just think yeah. that would be amazing to—I'll I'll buy the tickets and you—and and I'll drive you there, and you—you you oh pick the show because I will just—I will pick the wrong ones, and I'll just go and.
1: Yeah, I'll pick one like way downtown somewhere or somewhere in Brooklyn. Yes, that's not even listed yes. on what's on in New York, and we'll go see one of those because those are always the best anyway. I love it. It's a
0: date. Yeah. Well, un- and okay, until great. then, I am thankful for your your blithe spirit and your fierce principles and your open and loving heart. And thanks for inspiring Aww. me and all of us to find our voices and. Um, get a sense of ourselves so to folks who are listening out there this has been Deirdre Ring we'll link to um, her work on our show notes page and I'm wishing everyone else love and light be good to yourselves and one another and we'll see you again on this wild and precious journey wild precious life is a production of evergreen podcasts special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael DiAloya producer, Sarah Wilgrube, and audio engineer, Eric Coltnow. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Are you tired
0: of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit?